Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, June 13th, and for this Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about how news organizations should handle reporters who spend a lot of time, maybe too much time, on Twitter. And we break down the TV ratings for the first January 6th committee hearings, which aired in primetime last week. Were they big or not so much? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Monday the 13th, everybody. If it's Monday, it is Media Monday, which means I'm joined by my mentor, the greatest... (laughs) Journalist in history, the wise editor John Kelly. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm good, man. Uh, I would I would have just taken uh, friend, but uh, but I'm sure. Kidding. I, yeah, I mean, you're obviously not my mentor. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wrote in in your weekend email about this a little bit, but we were texting back and forth when the Washington yeah. Post drama started to bubble up in a very serious way for that company last week, and Dylan promptly jumped on the story, got some. Really, really good reporting from inside the post that I didn't see anywhere else. Dylan published a story before Felicia Sanmez, the reporter at the center of this drama. And if you haven't followed this, go back and listen to Friday's podcast. We explain yeah. it, read Dylan's piece on Puck. It can be pretty complicated if you're an outsider here. But one of the things Dylan included in his piece, which I hadn't really seen elsewhere, was that the publisher of the post, Fred Ryan, when he was interviewing incoming mm-hmm possible editors to, to take over for Marty Baron. Bezos, Jeff Bezos was sitting in on that meeting and Dylan sort of implied it strongly, but Fred Ryan was kind of open with it. The question of how do you manage a restive, younger employee base, many of whom have political opinions, <laughs> some of whom like to get in fights on Twitter with other reporters. And <laughs> it's clear no one really has the answer to that. The Post fired Felicia Sanmez saying that she was insubordinate. There's no clean way to get out of this, right? Yeah, actually, I don't think this is over yet. Sanmez, she's very resilient, seems to be very convinced of her position, and I don't think she'll take this quietly. But that was actually not your question. What you asked, which was, you know, kind of requires us to go back into the Wayback Machine a little bit, was this very real fear at top levels of many companies, but definitely media organizations, about how to deal with, an employee base that is often younger, that uh, is very social media savvy, and that has grown up in a generation where they didn't do what we did, Peter, which is like, you know, take shit and ask for more. And it's actually important to remember, because you're right, Fred Ryan and and Bezos did talk with these candidates about what they would have done with the Tom Cotton op-ed piece. And as a brief primer, Tom Cotton wrote a piece saying, send in the troops, this is in the wake of George Floyd. James Bennett, who was by many accounts, going to be the next editor, executive editor of the New York Times, was the opinion editor. And it was a wildly unpopular op-ed externally, but also within the Times. At first, 
A.G. Salzberger, the publisher of the paper, stood by Bennett. They were they were fairly close. And then eventually the reporting was that once Salzberger found out that Bennett didn't actually read the op-ed before publication, he realized that it wasn't just a failure of journalism, it was a failure of management too or something like that, and, and they got rid of him. It was an incredible situation. And we almost saw this like with meme stocks where the person at the top was outnumbered. And I think yeah. uh, Salzberger feared that moment. I, I don't want to get inside of his head, but anybody in his shoes could have credibly feared that there was going to be some form of like mid-COVID retaliation. The employee base was furious. Black employees felt that they were not safe. These are all very, very valid claims. And I presume if you are Fred Ryan and Jeff Bezos, who owns this entity, you're thinking, how the hell can we ensure that this never happens to us? And I assume that they probably worried at some point that they were getting pretty close to it. Yeah, another another thing I thought about, I mean, I have my own very strong opinions about reporters and their, their addiction to Twitter, which I ranted about in the Friday episode. But like one yeah. other thing I thought about in the, in the case of the Post situation, and it's not just them, there are a lot of reporters who have this metabolism, I certainly don't, where you can spend so much time on Twitter, on the internet, and I look at people and, and the volume of their tweets and the frequency, and I'm like, how do you have time to do that? your actual job? I hope that moving forward, and, and, D, and Dean Bacay sort of said this, Chris Licht hinted at this when he quit Twitter uh, right. before taking a CNN job, that like the work of journalism, while you can find sources and stories, experts on Twitter, like the meat of your job is, is happening off of Twitter. And I feel like that has to be something that newsroom editors have to tell their reporters moving forward that not only does this damage our brand and it's a bad look and we're worried about the politics, it's like, manage your time better. Because <laughs> the social media can really suck you in. I think that we're coming out of a period that we can now reflect on in which this generation of reporters, I think really felt like their their bosses didn't have a lot of credibility generationally. You know, mm -hmm. um, the generation that's sort of in power journalistically is the first real dominant Twitter generation. And they're working for people who are off Twitter. I mean, you, you'll see a world that, that looks almost asynchronous where, you know, maybe the the editor of the Washington Post, Sally Busby, only has tens of thousands of, of Twitter followers, but Ashley Parker has close to a million. And so there actually is like a sort of funny power dynamic that I think mm -hmm. this generation felt like they knew what was really going on. They knew how people were consuming news and that their bosses didn't, that they were out of touch dinosaurs. And I think that we're, we're now sort of seeing some sort of reset to a previous world, but on new platforms. And it's one where media organizations realize, okay, it actually doesn't really make a difference if you have a half a million or, or more Twitter followers because it does nothing for our business. Listeners, forgive me for saying this. I think this is the third time I mentioned this on, on this podcast, but like when John was pitching me on Puck and giving me the backstory, I think it was like sometime after the 2020 election week. And like I was wired on caffeine for like seven days in a row, firing off bajillion tweets. Obviously, 90% of them were extremely savvy and well-informed <laughs> and right. But, you know, you called me later and you were just like, reporters are giving this stuff away for free. Yeah, Like, you guys are giving this knowledge, this insight away for free on the internet. And there's the original devil's bargain of making news free for everybody and running your business on ads and not subscriptions. But, like, this was a later sin that we all got on Twitter and started showing off our knowledge. It was helpful for a lot of journalists coming up to prove that you were 
smarter and faster and better than the dinosaur who was holding it down on the CNN panels. But (laughs) you're right. If you are running a business, like you have to figure out ways to monetize knowledge and information and just spending all day on Twitter is not healthy in that sense either. It's also a terrible platform for conveying nuanced information, which is ironic because the reporters that we're talking about is focused entirely and sweats over making sure they get the most granular particulars correct. So it it doesn't make sense, but hopefully it's kind of over. And also, by the way, like one silver lining here is that we are entering a new media era where there are a lot more options. You know, when we, when you and I, again, were in our short pants, you know, back in the day when Wolf Blitzer was, was just, you know, barking at you to, to, to give him the, uh, the election counts, like people stayed in these jobs forever. And they were almost like um, universities with, with, with tenure. If you, if you got into the Washington Post, you'd be there forever. Now they have choices. And it is extremely possible that um, if Felicia Somnes wants to do a certain kind of journalism and wants to be part of a certain kind of culture, she shouldn't be at the Post. She, can, she has many other options, um, whether it's another large company, although I imagine that suing your employer is going to create some headwinds for her, or Substack. There are options out there, and that was not mm-hmm. the case five years ago. All right, John, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the January 6th hearings and whether the ratings in primetime last Thursday night were huge or not so huge. Huge, huge, (laughs) huge, huge. Welcome back. Last Thursday night, the January 6th committee in the House held their first hearings revealing the first details of their almost year-long investigation. They decided to air this in primetime. I believe the three broadcast networks, CNN and MSNBC, all took it live. Fox chose not to. (laughs) So the ratings came out Friday. 20 million people watched across those five networks. Those are preliminary ratings. Is that a lot of people or is that a disappointment? Well, Peter, I'll do my best to give the backstory of of our view here. I think when we were talking about this before we were taping, we both were underwhelmed by that number. Super producer Adam pointed out that it's uh, like two point six young Sheldons. Um, but but when we looked at when we looked at TV Newser, we were just sort of aghast at truly how low ratings are. I mean, you know, an elite uh, Anderson Cooper like star is pulling in less than two hundred thousand people in the demo on a night. So. I think that is a substantial number, but when you think of the ambition of this, which was to to try and really reach a large swath of the 150 million-ish American electorate, I don't think, no, this is going to be persuasive. But what do you think? I saw a tweet from Medium Buying, which is like just a media buying company in politics, and they sort of said during the uh, Trump years, the big congressional hearings, the Mueller hearings, Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, Michael Cohen's testimony, impeachment hearings, those were televised during the day. Some of them were on networks. Most of them were broadcast on the networks and cable. Those hearings in the Trump years were running between 13 and 20 million viewers. So basically like the same amount, but during the day. Mm -hmm. So there was massive tune-in to this political spectacle during the Trump years. And the producers of of these hearings now in the Biden era, when people are exhausted and tuning out the news a lot more, it was good of them to move it to primetime because their numbers were basically the same as daytime 
during the Trump years. So like if they, in other words, like if they were televised during the day, I think the numbers would have been a lot lower. So I said this to Tara last week, like we shouldn't dismiss the merits and the substance of what's being revealed in the hearings. There's some incredible stuff that Trump's inner circle, including like Jared and Ivanka told him. I know. <laughs> hey man, you lost? Jared is truly, Jared is just so unlikable. It, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, it's amazing. A couple of things that really struck me and I, I listened to your conversation with Tara. This did not seem like a James Goldson production. Um, obviously, the, the video is harrowing. That got most of the, of the uh, attention. And I thought that Liz Cheney's remarks were very good. I don't know if she wrote them by her uh, alone or if she wrote them in concert with, with Goldson or his team. But this seemed like a hearing to me. It did not seem like television. And maybe that was part of the intention that they, that they wanted it to be serious and, and, and stand on its own. But it was, at, at the very least, not what I was expecting. What I give it immense credit for is it it didn't incriminate itself by trying to be too uh, exploitative of the moment. I feel like when they decided to bring in James Golson, there, there was a collective small sigh that, oh, there was going to be an overreach here among the committee members, but that actually this seemed like a very, very serious hearing and very credible. And there, uh, at least in my mind, there was no mugging for cameras. I thought Liz Cheney was fantastic. The words I never thought that I would come out of my mouth. I thought that she did her best to avoid any attempt of apparent grandstanding. I also think Raskin is great too. Like he's just very, his emotion, I think, gives him credibility in a way. Like he doesn't, he just doesn't come off as sort of like dry, boring, like process oriented guy, even though he's like a very smart attorney. Um, but yeah, I agree, man. Like it's hard to make a congressional hearing sexy beyond the hearing. Like the substance of what people are saying and presenting is happening in the House chambers and you switch cameras and call for shots, you know, if you're like the camera guy or the the director in the, stu in the control room. But like, you know, there's other things. Tara was saying this, like maybe James is prepping people on how to like ask questions right. or like respond to answers or produce some of these videos that are being released on the internet. But it's, it's tough. I mean, it's still a congressional hearing. You can't really take it out of that context. Yeah, one other thing Tara pointed out too in the Washington Mall, which I suggest any listener uh, sign up for, is uh, ostensibly the purpose of this was twofold. To convince a sort of member of Trump's America what really happened. You know, I mean, it's it's staggering, but, but more than half of, uh, of Republicans believe that the election was rigged and, and, and many people think that January 6th was this insignificant event. And the other was to influence Merrick Garland to move forward with, with the case against one of the principals. One of the surprising stars of the night, Peter, media stars, was your pal, Bill Barr, who- um, My pal? <laughs> <laughs> who um, uh, used some colorful language and um, looked like he'd eaten his human pills before you know he uh, spoke to the uh, <laughs> his deposition with the committee. How do you reconcile this? Like, you know, Bill Barr was was absolutely a, a political force as AG, and um, and in the elements of the conversation that I saw in that sort of sizzle video, I mean, he was attempting to to prove that he was the the voice of of calm and reason. Um, this is all just bullshit. I mean, if you talk to Democrats and sort of and like the never Trump types, like he's is still irredeemable. Um, you know the the fury that people had with him during the Trump years is hard to get away from. But, you know, strange new respect is a very powerful uh, weapon in Washington. Um, you know, Mike Pence 
got a glowing profile in The Atlantic this last week that said, Mike Pence is an American hero. And, you know, a lot of Trump people have worked pretty hard to rehabilitate their uh, images. And Barr is certainly playing that game. You know, it's funny, like, I used to live in Washington and, you know, I read Mark Leibovich's book, This Town, which is so good. It wasn't until I really moved out of D.C. that I understood how cynical some of the behavior can be. Yes, I want to climb to the top of the legal ranks and become an attorney general, even for a president I don't like. But even then, you know that Bill Barr is thinking around the corner, no matter what happens. Oh, of course. I can get on 60 Minutes. I can back away slowly and still get invited to the right parties. But I still get to say I was attorney general of the United States. But the thing about him, though, is that he already was. He has a perplexing psychopathy, too, because he already had money. He already been in big jobs. You are right. He is a creature of the town that just yeah. could not get enough and um, and had to come back for more. And, yeah. Um, wait, but Peter, this is uh, let's use this as a as a bonus track moment in the, in the powers that be because you you just triggered me. I read last week an excerpt in the New York Times uh, from the book written by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, the marital DC Woodward and Bernstein of of, of their moment, um, and it was interesting to me and slightly frightening to read. Uh, a book, especially by such competent journalists, that had all the echoes of that sort of Trump world access journalism from from 2016, 2017, 2018, and beyond, where you're privy to the inner thoughts of Jared Kushner and and others from that inner circle. And you just realize how much reputation sanitizing has gone on, where all, all these people who, you know, deliberately did things to disgrace this country. I mean, you know, we forget about the Muslim ban and separating children from their parents at the borders. And now we're preparing for a world in which they're going to be the key sources again and journalists are going to be in a position where they're going to have to draw lines and figure out what they're going to be, you know, comfortable, credibly reporting and and when they're going to be gullible. So it was a little head spinning to me and uh, a little bit of, of deja vu, but it made me more than a little fearful too. Yeah, I noticed that when you sent you sent that piece through. Yeah, I put it in Slack. And yeah. it was just like, who is this source who knows intimately that uh, Jared <laughs> Kushner woke up and thought this one morning? Who else would have been in the room? Oh, probably just Jared. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, man. Let's have a good week here at Puck. All right. I will see you soon. See you, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.